everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 275 of Yoga Land. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm good. We are on our last leg of our summer vacation journey in Ohio. We had quite... We had quite a journey. <laughs> I think we'll... We'll leave we'll most of it. That. To, yeah, we'll take that. We're going to leave you in suspense. That'll be a story for another time. But today we're going to talk. Last time we talked about meditation myths. Today we're going to talk about myths about yoga practice. Sure. I just thought it would be fun and interesting. Yeah, it's fun. It's interesting. And look, we all make mistakes. So everything that we'll talk about is hopefully both to be informative, but also to be a reminder that we live, we learn, and it's always important to question and evolve. Oh my gosh, I thought you were going to bust out into an Alanis Morissette song there for a second. I don't even get the rest of it. Oh, no, don't do it to me. Don't do it to me. Don't do it to me. <laughs> all right, all right. Those right. are fighting words. Okay. First, our bit of personal advertising, which is to say that we're going to do a webinar. You're going to do a webinar. I just do, do the setup. Yes. I'm going to do a webinar about my 200-hour training, and I'm super excited about it. It's going to be on August 14th, which is a Sunday. And I'm not going to say what time it is because it just depends on what time zone you're in. So if you want to join and learn more, where should you go, Andrea? You should go to learn.jasonyoga.com slash webinar. So it's a little info session if you are thinking about becoming a yoga teacher, if you are thinking about the 200-hour training with Jason, you should because it's awesome. And it is just such a great foundational training. I've watched the videos. I love it. it makes me love him even more. So you should come to this webinar because you can get more questions answered and you can even ask questions yep. at the end. Yep. So go to that URL, learn.jasonyoga.com slash webinar. I'll also put it on the show notes page and then you can enter your email to sign up and you will get a link. And if you're not able to attend live, you will get a replay email to you. Yeah. But definitely try to attend live. It's always just more fun. Totally. More interesting. So of course the 200 hour online is coming up. Yeah. And then also if you hear this when it first comes out and you live in London or anywhere in England, I am teaching August 14th and 15th open workshops at Tri Yoga in London. And this is going to be like, I don't have many trips built for London again. So let me put it that way. So if I would love if you can join me to join me for those, this is going to be a good in-person option. And I just don't know how many more in-person options there are going to be for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So those will be at Tri Yoga. And if you just go to tryyoga.uk, T-R-I yoga.uk, you can get all the info and sign up for those workshops. And Jason hopes to see you. I do. Yeah. Myths. So let's start with the first one. Which I is... want Wait, I want one more thing before okay. the first one, which I just want to remind everyone, like I said a moment ago, we all make mistakes, and I don't want anyone to feel bad. So if you hear these and you still say these things, just realize, like, many people still do. And in 20 years from now, there'll be more myths. There'll be people who have learned and grown in the ensuing 20 years and hopefully have a little bit more of an accurate perspective. So this isn't to be backhanded or dismissive of anyone it's just to it's just to move the conversation forward and maybe put to rest some things that we can let go of. 
So you do what we do in parenting, which is we do the best we can with the information that we have at the time. Yes. That's how we parent. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is one of my whole time favorites, because when you and I were coming up, when we were just little fledglings, it was said all the time. All and the that time. is that twists detoxify. They do not. Okay. There's not even a mechanism by which to believe this is correct. What do you think the intention is behind? What do you think people think that means when they say it? Okay. So let's start by being very literal. And let's start by giving it the greatest benefit of the doubt. Okay. So let's be really clear. What detoxifies us is our various organs. Actions do not detoxify us. Our organs detoxify us. So you could make a good, decent claim that facilitating circulation, facilitating blood circulation and lymphatic circulation helps our organs, including our detoxifying organs, work optimally. That wouldn't be so off. But the problem by saying twists are detoxifying is it's one of these things where it's too specific to be correct. Because twists don't facilitate circulation any better than side bends do, than standing poses do, than inversions do, than back bends do. So what you could make a valid claim for is that yoga facilitates circulation of all of our systems and in doing so helps facilitate enhanced or optimal health. And that also facilitates detoxification because that's a function of an organ, right? So if we're being the most literal, I think that's what we want to do. And the problem is when we call out a singular group of postures as having a specific effect that others do not. And that's where there's the problem. Okay. So where do you think the idea that it was twists doing this, where do you think that idea originated? I think I remember what people used to say. Okay. I think there's two things, not to go so heavy into it, but what we have to remember as a contemporary yoga practitioner is that yoga comes from a very, there, I should, let me put it this way. There is a lot of mysticism and hyperbole baked in to the original practices of Hatha Yoga. We even see this in Patanjali. I think he has 33 aphorisms about the magical powers, the cities, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so we are we inherit this culture that has strong and often mystical claims. And I think it's really intellectually interesting. I think it's beautiful. I think it's important to know. But I also think that we live in a time and era where continuing to make certain physiological claims when those claims have yet to be in any way validated, and there really isn't a mechanism by which those claims could be validated, mm -hmm. I think it's, and maybe it's time to put that to rest. So I just want to add one little wrinkle to this, which is that I remember that teachers used to say it. Like when you were laying on your back and doing a supine twist. So let's say you're laying on your back, you take your left knee toward your chest, and then you draw your left knee over toward the right side. I remember teachers saying it would compress the liver. And that's where I think it makes sense when you say it's just a bit too specific to be it's measurable. Too specific. So what would be a way, you, you kind of already said it, but just to clarify, what would be something that would physiologically be a correct way to refer to the processes that people are talking about? I think we have to stay more broad. Okay. I think we have to stay more broad. I think we have to say 
that the yoga practice, if we want to make some physiological statements, we have to stay broad and we have to say that yoga facilitates circulation. Movement facilitates circulation. The facilitation of circulation is the fundamental core of biological health. And so it is, so that's again where it's, it's not that yoga isn't amazing for us. It's not that it doesn't have all these values. It's just that saying something like rotation compresses the liver, everything is so boxed in there. You're going to change pressure differentials when you do various yoga postures and changing those pressure differentials is going to facilitate circulation. But twisting isn't going to change it any more than a backbend is or than shoulder stand is or triangle poses. So that's where, again, I think we just, we want to stay broad. Now, one more thing, which is I think a lot of teachers use the word detoxification or toxins in a metaphorical way to be representative of just mental and physical things that are not good for us. So this is a detox practice, and that might be to let go of some of the mental debris and detritus. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, so I want to acknowledge it. It's not something that I do because to me, it is a specific term. So I have a hard time working with that terminology. Like, I would be happy but if... But you understand it, the metaphor. I understand the metaphor. You understand the metaphor. Yeah. Okay, let's leave yeah. it there. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so next myth. Jumping back to Chaturanga is safer than jumping back to plank. Now, here's the thing. I've also heard the reverse claim. Jumping back to plank is safer than jumping back to Chaturanga. You, we can also put another one, kind of lay it out in another way, which is if you can't jump back to Chaturanga, you shouldn't jump back to plank, right? Okay, okay. So this is, I think this is actually pretty simple because what we can mostly do is rely on some very simple logic, Okay which is to say, which one of these postures is more difficult to do skillfully, chaturanga or plank? It's much easier to do plank skillfully than chaturanga, right? Now, if you add momentum into one of those postures, plank and chaturanga, which one of those is easier to control momentum? It's much easier to control momentum back into plank than it is to chaturanga because it's a shorter distance because the elbows are straight, they're not bent. So when you jump back to chaturanga, you end up in a lower position, which means that just logically, plank is easier than chaturanga. Controlling the transitional motion is easier in moving to plank than it is to chaturanga because there's actually less net motion. But what a lot of times people will compare is, we'll see this a lot of times in yoga And I think in other situations where we compare doing one thing skillfully to doing another thing unskillfully. And what a lot of people will compare is people jumping back into plank. And then when they land in plank, letting the hips drop too low and like sagging too low. So almost like jumping back to plank and then sagging in the midsection, almost mimicking and potentially creating too much lumbar compression. But If someone was going to do that in plank, they would definitely do that in chaturanga because they also, because they have more momentum to control. So it's just a logical fallacy that jumping back to plank is less safe than jumping back to chaturanga. 
The other thing is, do you remember you ha- you actually had Robin Capo Bianco, the kinesiologist, on, and she tested these out in her lab. She tested out, from my recollection, using sensors and ground reaction force between jumping back to plank and jumping back to chaturanga. And through looking at ground reaction force, she saw that those measured as equal to each other. So I think what we can put to rest is this. I think what we can compare is doing one of those well versus doing the other one of those well. And if you're able to jump back to plank with skill and not bounce down in your midsection, then it's safe, it's reasonable, it's skillful. If you can control that transition, do it. If you can't control that transition and you jump back to plank and you bounce in the middle and you don't have the core strength, then step back, it's not appropriate. Similarly, jumping back to chaturanga, You can jump back to Chaturanga safely, absolutely. It just takes more strength and more control. But if you can do it safely and skillfully, do it. If you can't, just step back and lower down. And I wanted to mention, since you brought this up, I think, before we turned on the recording, these are questions that come up often in your teacher training. All the time. Yeah, that's how I came up with these, right? And these are things, too. We'll even see that some of these further on, they're not even necessarily myths, But there are more things that need more fleshing out. They need more contextualization. Even like the twist being detoxifying. Sure, they're as detoxifying as anything else is that facilitates circulation. But no more. Okay. Okay. So the next one that you have been asked more and more often lately is whether or not ujjayi ujjayi breathing is bad for your throat. Yes. This This one needs context. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a story. Are you ready for the story? I'm ready. Okay. So for a couple of weeks, I decided that I wanted to eat. And so I ate a lot, like a lot. I arguably overate. I ate so much that I had a tummy ache. So therefore eating, I have decided is dangerous and other people shouldn't do it. Everybody, this is a logic that we have to take a step back and we have to look at how many things, especially in social media, are made out to be dangerous because someone had a bad experience with them. And we actually have to see this, I ate too much, my tummy hurts, eating is dangerous logic. And it doesn't, like to me, there's almost a whole cottage industry built up around how potentially unsafe various activities are done by people who have done them admittedly poorly. And we have this like almost mother knows best or father knows best attitude of like, I made this mistake and so therefore you shouldn't and here's the rationale for this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let me just say this, doing something too much, too long and too intensely can almost invariably cause problems, whether it is a forward bend, whether it's a back bend, whether it's an inversion, or whether it's ujjayi breath. So when you engage the glottis, so when you engage the vocal folds... Can I just interrupt for one second? Yeah. When people are asking you this, like, are they afraid that there's going to be long-term damage? Yes. Okay, got it. Yeah, long-term, but also short-term, both. Okay. Like, it's, it's going to produce an injury. Got right? it, okay. And... Can you can you create an injury through breathing too loud, view joy breath for too long? Can you cause 
a problem with your throat? Totally. You can overdo just about anything. That doesn't mean it's dangerous, right? That's like thinking that putting a side table next to the couch is dangerous because you hit your foot against it. It just, it isn't any time... Okay, I'll just stay on track with Sorry. this one. Yeah. No, no. So when you are just sitting here and listening to the podcast, so our audience, if they're just sitting and listening to the podcast, and they're not doing any kind of specific regulated breathing, their vocal folds are situated in such a way they are that they are open, okay? So air is passing through the vocal folds. Me, as I'm talking my vocal folds are closing. So when you speak in order to produce phonation, the vocal folds close. So if you're just hanging out and listening, your vocal folds are open. Me, mine are closing because I'm talking. If you were to cough or you were to sneeze, they would open even more. But if you were to whisper, the vocal folds go partially closed. So when you go partially closed, through a whisper, and the whispering mechanism is the same mechanism as the sounding component of Ujjayi breath. It is a partial closing of the glottis. So if you start huffing and puffing really loud Ujjayi breath, and to be fair, there are a lot of teachers that at least, they am sure they still do, talk about breathing loud and cranking mm-hmm. it up and all mm-hmm. those things. And so in that environment, or think about this, if I talked loudly in a whisper for a long time, that can absolutely irritate the vocal folds because you are, you have a more closed distribution or a more closed angle. So if I'm pushing and pulling air strongly over that closed angle, over time, it can irritate that. That's actually a very fair understanding and probably a very important understanding. But that doesn't mean ujjayi breath is dangerous. It means don't do it so loudly. Mm -hmm. Don't work so hard. If someone's saying pump it up, that's because the teacher is probably insecure. I've been so insecure. We all know as yoga teachers, right? Like we want feedback. We want to know like our students are into it. And when you hear, Yeah. yeah, when you hear a group of students breathing in rhythm, As a teacher, you feel like, oh my God, this is good. This is good. And so as teachers, we like to hear that. And sometimes people maybe overly encourage others to breathe loudly. So I think the bottom line point on this is whispering loudly doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It's the antithesis of what a whisper is. Right. (laughs) So doing ujjayi breath loudly also doesn't make sense. But whispering quietly does make sense because it's a normal human function. And so therefore also doing ujjayi breath with the sound quietly absolutely makes sense. And I think maybe to put people's minds at ease more, if you, it's like anything, if you're doing it and it hurts in a bad way to do it, then you're going to know that could possibly injure your vocal cords. Then don't stop doing it. Like, yeah, strain them. You're going to know. Treat your vocal folds. If you do ujjayi breath, especially if you're in Ashtangi, and you do a lot of ujjayi breath, treat them like they're the rest of your body. Yeah. Be sensible. Be moderate. And if it starts to feel like too much and an irritant, it probably is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
Next idea. The feet have to stay hip-width apart, and you shouldn't engage your glutes in backbends. Yes. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yes. And this is something that I've written so much about and made so many teachers' companions about, so I'm going to be kind of brief about it. And let me just say, having in bridge and Urdhvadhanurasana, Vipriti Dandasana, these reclined backbends, having your feet hip-width apart and parallel is very good. There's totally nothing wrong with that. Those aren't wrong. That's why it's that's why it's a myth, is that isn't wrong, but it isn't the only right. And I'll tell you exactly who that alignment will work well for, and then who that alignment probably isn't going to work as well for. Okay. So for people that have highly mobile quadriceps and highly mobile hip flexors and or highly mobile lumbar spine. Feet parallel and hip width apart will work just fine. If you are that body type, there's no reason to take your feet wider than hip width apart. Hip width apart is really efficient, okay? It's efficient because you don't have waist. So what I want you to think about everybody is like propulsion, right? I want to push down in order to go up. If I want to lift my hips and thighs straight up, If I want to arc straight up, which I do in those poses, then I want to push straight down. And the more my feet are parallel and hip width apart, the more I'm pushing straight down commensurate with the line that is lifting up. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense outside of my head? Yeah, totally. Okay. So that's, it's hugely efficient. However, for people that have tighter hip flexors and tighter quadriceps, it's less efficient because the closer the, everyone can do this experiment, actually. You can take the feet all the way together in those poses and you're probably going to feel less lift in the hips and in the thighs. So the closer the feet are to each other, let's say they're touching and the inner legs are together, the more the resistance of both sides is going to compound each other. So when your feet are all the way together and coming into bridge or Urdhva the tightness in your quads and hip flexors of the left side and the right side, they're close together. So they're compounding each other's resistance. The opposite is also true. If you take the feet about as wide as the mat and slightly turn the feet out, you uncouple the conjoined resistance of the right side and the left side. And so therefore, you can get more elevation. You can just you have less resistance in that motion. So for people that have more restriction in quads and hip flexors, taking the feet about hip width apart is, excuse me, about mat width apart is a little bit more efficient. Another thing to say about this, which is the angle of the leg doesn't change the compression of the lumbar spine. Yeah, it was what say, changes if, the compression of the yeah. lumbar spine is going too far in the lumbar spine. It's a straw man argument. It's a complete straw man. What about the fact that you're decoupling the two legs, the force of the two legs? Like, could you potentially push harder on your stronger side and tweak your sacrum on that side? I think it's unlikely, but let's see this. Let's say someone has extra mobility. Taking the feet further apart may facilitate their ability to go further 
that for some might be undesirable because going further might actually help that person go too far. So this is where where I want us to experiment. I want us to explore. Same thing with using the glutes, everyone. And we'll just do really simple, which is engagement of muscles in and of themselves do not produce compression. Like literally no one on the planet is, don't engage your biceps, you're gonna compress your elbow. That doesn't happen. That's not how it works. But could you overwork a muscle and could you go too far? Yes. Mm-hmm. This is just like the Ujjayi thing. Okay. It's, it's the same thing. It's don't use your glutes. You might go too far. But the thing is, if you don't use your glutes, then you're more, you're going to have less efficiency in the pose. And you're going to have, for the most part, less support in the pose. So I think the bottom line is, in my mind, I don't think just my mind. I think in the our rational mechanical world, in these backbends, anywhere from the feet being hip width apart and the thighs parallel to each other to feet about as wide as the mat and slightly turned out, maybe 15 to 20 degrees, I think that's the range to expose yourself and your students to. Like there's going to be a range there and it's not cheating It's not dangerous. There's a mechanical upside to that width. And what we're looking for is a position and a set of actions that in your individual circumstance feel good. If one of those things feels compressive to your lumbar spine, then try somewhere else on that pathway. Okay. For some reason, I just thought of, have you ever heard of that? This is such a non sequitur, but I'm just injecting a little, I don't know, a little of my humor. A little non sequitur. Yeah. Do you, have you ever heard that when you read a fortune cookie out loud, you're supposed to add the words in bed to the end of it? No. No? no. You've never heard that? No. Oh my gosh. We just thought that was so funny in high it school. Is funny. So it's I'm almost you will be lucky. You will be lucky in the month of August. In bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like so that. I was thinking because I you had written on this little prompter for me, the feet have to stay hip width and you should engage your glutes. I was thinking, and I added in back bends. What if we added in back bends to everything we talked in about bends. in yoga? In yeah. back bends. Not in bed, guys. I wasn't no, going, you weren't there. going there. I was not nope, going there. Not going we'll there. take that off the air for me and Mr. Crandall. Okay. Hypermobility and flexibility are the same thing in bed. Just kidding. Oh my god. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. They're not. Okay. They are not. Hypermobility <laughs> and flexibility are not the same thing. Now, we are going to keep this really simple because we need yet another proper conversation about hypermobility. Okay. But hypermobility refers to excess laxity in the non muscular parts of a joint. I'll say it again. Hypermobility, hypermobility is a specific thing and it refers to excess motion or excess laxity in the non-muscular parts of a joint structure. So some people that have hypermobility are not very flexible. So flexibility is the capacity for tissues to be lengthened, the capacity for tissues to be lengthened, typically passively so, okay? A lot of people that have true hypermobility, a lot of people that have true hypermobility actually have pretty tight muscles. They actually lack flexibility. 
because at least in certain directions you'll see it. Yeah, you'll but, see it. Yeah, but so here's the thing: joints have to have a certain amount of resilience. They have to have a certain amount of spring-like quality. And so for many people, not all people, because it's complicated and dynamic, but for many people who have excess laxity in the non-muscular parts of a joint, the muscles of that same area are extra tight because they're compensating for the extra mobility within the joint capsule and within the, within the ligament structure itself. Whereas many people that are hugely flexible do not have laxity within the joint structure itself. And this is one of these things that I know as a yoga teacher, I don't know what I'm seeing when I'm seeing it. Meaning I don't know you're not going to see hypermobility from the outside. You might see a part of the body that has a lot of motion, but it's actually really difficult unless you're a specialist and working with people individually. It's extremely difficult if you don't have high-level physical therapy training to discern whether or not someone has hypermobility or flexibility. It's really better... I guess the main thing I want to do is have us not casually pair those terms. Yes. There's a series of diagnostics if you suspect that you have any of the hypermobility syndromes, because hypermobility also refers to the collagen, and there can be certain chronic conditions associated with it, like Ehlers-Danlos, and I think even POTS might be associated with hypermobility. But anyway, yes, there are a series of diagnostics, and they are not diagnostics that yoga teachers do in class. Not or in should class. they? Yeah. No. And that doesn't mean that we can't ever know the difference or have that training. But the point is that re- that it's like saying, you know, it's like saying someone has anxiety versus someone is concerned about something. Like th- those aren't the same thing. Yeah. One is, one is an actual term. They're both actual terms. Yeah. But yeah, they, these aren't the same thing. Okay. And then our last one that we're going to go over today is you have to be able to do a pose to teach a pose. I threw this in or in there almost for controversy to get a little attention. And this is one of these that I think is both true and not true, but it just needs a little more context. I don't think it's true at all. As a former dancer, there were so many dance masters who were well past the point of being able to do the things they were teaching us to do and you could and and also dance is constantly evolving so there were things that they would have never done in their youth that they were teaching us to do and the expression was if you can't do teach i mean i think that's kind of an insulting expression and i don't I, so i don't but that's it i think you yeah, yeah. so this is i'm gonna go down this i'm gonna go down the same logic you're going down But I do think that there is an important counter to this, okay? But let's start with this side of the equation. You just mentioned dance. I'll mention the greatest fight coaches that are out. I'll mention the greatest hockey coaches that are out. Hall of Fame football coaches, soccer, basketball, basketball, that never even played the game. And most people that are high-level coaches played the game, but were more or less mediocre at the game, that they had great minds for the game and a great technical and conceptual understanding for the game and amazing eyes for the game 
and really good analytical skills, but not necessarily the pure physical attributes to play that game at the highest level. Exactly. Right? So I do think that in general, it's a myth, but you have to have a feel for it. You have to have a kinesthetic feel for it. So I want to give a couple of direct examples, right? Which is there are certain postures I do not teach. I understand them technically, but I just don't have a feel for them. They just don't make sense in my body. Now, these are weird poses, but Ekapada Raja Kapatasana 3. It's the one, it's the full pigeon where the front leg is in... Anamanasana? Um, no, Virasana. Oh. oh, yeah, that one. I just don't get it. One. It doesn't make any sense to my body. I yeah. don't have a kinesthetic feel for it, okay? Mine would be Marichasana D. Yeah, Marichasana D. Yeah. That one I have a feel for. I don't teach that pose, mm. but another one like Mandalasana, right? So Mandalasana, those, it's headstand, but then you do a drop back, so you end up in Viparita Dandasana, and then you... Your legs rotate. Yeah, your legs run around of, your... Yeah, you run around. You, your axis of your head and your forearms still on yeah, the ground. Yeah, so you're making a mandala. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have any feel for that. I don't. Yogi Nidrasana. Like, both legs behind the head. Ekapada Shirshasana. There's two versions of Ekapada Shirshasana. But the one, the forward bend with the leg behind the head. I don't That's have funny. a feel those for those. are actually... I don't okay have a feel for, for those. Yeah, yeah. So, now on the other hand, I'll teach Scorpion in a heartbeat. I'm not, my head, my my feet and my head don't come anywhere near each other. I'm not very good at that pose. Natarajasana, with my holding overhead, I'm not good at that pose. Kapinjalasana, I, I'm not good at that pose. I need a belt. Why am I not remembering what... Oh, now I remember. Right. Okay, so I think what I want to divide here is this. I want to make three categories, okay? Number one category is never really had a kinesthetic sense of the pose. Don't teach it. Don't teach it. You don't have a feel for the pose. Don't teach it, right? You don't have to. Not everyone has to teach every pose, right? Number two, you do have a kinesthetic feel for the pose, but you're not currently, like it's not in part of your current repertoire, right? Teach it if it's relevant to your students. Because there's so many things for me just specifically that I don't practice on a regular basis. Like I don't do headstand drop backs. I don't do regular drop backs. I don't do kapotasana. Like the deeper back bends, they don't really work for my spine anymore because my spine doesn't work super well because it was broken a long time ago, but I have a feel for them. So I'll teach them if they're relevant because they're in me. I understand them conceptually, technically, and kinesthetically. So hell yeah. And I think that's the category where you're talking about the dance masters. And then I think the final category, right, is the postures that you do know, you do understand, you do practice, but you're not that great at them. You know what I mean? And that might be for some of you listening, that might be like, you're not that great getting into bakhasana, but you're there and there's maybe a split second in time where you are there. Teach it. You have tight hamstrings and you really struggle to do a wide-legged forward bend. So (laughs) teach it. Right. You struggle with deep back bends or you can do handstand at the wall, but it's still a little scary and you can't 
balance in it. That's fine. Teach you it. understand the actions. You understand the actions. You understand the concepts. You have a kinesthetic feel for it. You have a good eye for it. If you feel like it is safe for the people in the room and beneficial, teach it. Don't have an understanding of it. You don't have a feel for it. Don't teach it. I think that's, I think it's that simple. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, yeah, you, and like you just rattled off the ones that you wouldn't teach. And I could, if I were still teaching, I would have five that I could handily name that I wouldn't feel comfortable teaching and five that I cannot do that I would feel comfortable teaching. So I think that's a good measuring stick. Yeah, your st- it's your students' class. It's your students' practice. What they do in their body and what you do in your body may not be the exact same thing at the exact same time. You mentioned a couple of the yoga teachers' companions. You have addressed the issue of foot placement and glute engagement and backbends. So send me that link and I'll put it on the show notes okay. page. Okay? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will put those show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 275. And I will also put links to the upcoming webinar slash info session with Jason and to the upcoming live workshops in London. Aren't too many opportunities to study with this guy live anymore. So I would take him up on it if I could myself. It's always helpful if you leave reviews for the podcast, if you share it when you enjoy it, and if you sign up for our newsletter, which is the best way for us to keep in touch with you. You can sign up at jasonyoga.com slash newsletter. I hope you found today's episode useful. And until next week, enjoy your practice.